we would like to spend a few minutes uh, reviewing chapter 1, reminding ourselves of what happens in chapter 1, and then we would like to spend most of today, uh, tonight, on Hebrews chapter 2. Scott, can you pray for us before we sure. get into it? Let's pray. I'm mic'd up here. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to gather and to open up your word and to discuss uh, this wonderful book, the book of Hebrews, and uh, it is certainly meaty, so uh, Father, certainly your word says if any uh, lacks wisdom, we should ask, so Father, I pray that you'd uh, give us wisdom tonight as we open your word, as we open the book of Hebrews, um, as we discuss this very important topic of drifting, at least at the beginning. Uh, Father, help us to see the danger of drifting spiritually. Uh, help us to fight against the carelessness in our lives that leads so often to spiritual drift. Uh, and help us to see uh, Christ uh, clearly tonight. Uh, I pray that as we see Christ, we would be changed uh, from one degree of glory to the next. And help us to be attentive to your word uh, as we discuss your word. And help us to be able to apply uh, truths we learn from this passage to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And before, I would like to ask Fred to read all of chapter 1 in a moment, but before Fred does that, let's look at our first verse tonight in chapter 2. So be, before I read this, uh, chapter 1, there have been no commandments at all, nothing to do per se. It's just telling us about Jesus. It's telling us who he is in comparison to angels and how he's of the same nature as God the Father. The first command in the book is 2-1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So the first command is that we pay attention to chapter 1. That's the first command of the book. Everything we've just covered in chapter 1 about Jesus, we must pay close attention to what we've heard in Jesus, that final word through the Son, so that we don't lose heart, become apathetic, indifferent and drift away. And so in order to obey verse 1, let's go ahead and spend a few minutes reviewing chapter 1. So Fred, can you read the whole of chapter 1? Yes. The word of the Lord. Uh, Long ago in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So, Fred, can you give us just some, some overview <laughs> thoughts of that incredible chapter that wow. is so dense? In the beginning, <laughs> um, 
you know, it begins, you know, I, I think the, the serious meat is in the first four verses, obviously, and, and the other verses simply amplify those four verses. But uh, long ago, many times, many ways. Wow, if you've ever read the Bible, you know it's about, especially the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, it's about long ago and many times in many ways. And if we could sit here right now and stop the re recording and just tell stories and we could be here this time tomorrow um, about how God revealed himself and spoke to us through his prophets. But in these last days, and, and to the Jew, the last days meant Jesus, Messiah. Uh, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed um, the heir of all things uh, through whom he created the world. Wow. You know, first he spoke through the prophets, but in these last days through the son. And he's the heir of all things. And incidentally, he just happened to have created the world. Isn't that an amazing passage? He just, he just, he created the world. He spoke the world in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And um, all creation uh, owes its existence to the Son. Now, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature thought about radiance you know a lot of times radiance is reflected and you get light reflected um, in mirrors and windows and stuff but the sun doesn't reflect because the sun originates its own light and so does the son of God he's the uh, originator of that glory he's not reflecting the father's glory he has his own glory just like the sun has its own glory through the sun um, the exact imprint of his nature, the same essence, um, not, not a picture on a coin, but in his being, he's the same as the Father. Uh, the exact imprint. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Nothing happens. You got some, we got some scientific folks out there. Um, every atom, every molecule, every electron, every every being in this universe owes its existence its very functionality to the sun i mean let go. me just no, go i want to jump in with what you're saying so you know today when people say you know if if christianity works for you if it makes you feel good if it, if it makes your life work then i'm happy that you found jesus in church you know i had a relative say this to me in, in, in our extended family he said i'm glad i'm glad mark has found uh something that works for him I found something else that works for me. And he had another group that was not a Christian group that, it, that was what gave him meaning and purpose. So he's like, I'm glad G Mark's got his little Jesus thing. That's great. Gives him a sense of meaning. I've got my thing over here. It gives me a sense of meaning. Just don't tell me to believe in yours. Don't force me into your... And, and what you're saying is, if these, these, claims, these claims being true, uh, make it to where this is not just about which, which group makes you feel better or what group gives you a sense of belonging or meaning. No, this is a, this is a truth claim that the guy named Jesus from history is the same being that created the universe. And so he, he breathed into existence all that exists uh, in accordance with the Father's will and through the Spirit. And this is not just a way of getting a sense of meaning for me or you. This is an objective claim that the Jesus of Nazareth is the creator God of the universe, which is quite breathtaking. Yeah, and, and I was just looking at my notes here, but, but that includes you know, time and space and matter and um, and everything that, that makes it function that way. Um, every, think about this, every storm, every tsunami, every hurricane uh, doesn't have just an idle path. Yeah, it follows wind currents and those kinds of things, but, but this part of the functionality of the sun to direct and control the universe um, by the word of his power, just his word, and after making purification for sins, almost like, incidentally, he purified our sins. 
amazing statement. You know, you just want to, that's one of those sentences that you want to just jump up and, and, and say hallelujah. Um, he sat down at the right hand of, of the majesty on high. And he's completed his purification, his atonement, his propitiation for our sins. He died. He was resurrected on the third day. Uh, he rose and, you know, then ascended uh, back to his father where he's seated at the right hand, which is a position of power. Now, he's still subordinate to the father, but he's still all powerful in, at the throne of God. So... Um, I mentioned radiance and all that. Um, you know, one of his purposes is the uh, is is the consummation of all things according to God's plan. Um, uh, he, he's just not he didn't come just to die. He's to carry out God's complete will for the universe, even now, and in his position at the right hand of God. Um, now, he rules as sovereign Lord. Um, now, you know, there's, there's, he didn't die as a martyr. He died uh, as a savior. Uh, but there's, there's going to be, uh, he's seated, the right, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he's seated there. And, uh, and one day, he'll get deliver the kingdom back to the Father. Um, Having become as much superior to angels, and maybe if I'm, I'm taking too long here, much superior to angels is the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, I, t I told Mark before we began, I, I, thanks to a book that Tyler gave me, uh, uh, I spent some time on angelology, and which is a fascinating read, and uh, the Apocrypha and the uh, Pseudepigrapha have uh, a number of, of major treatments of angels. Uh, some of the books, Tobit, now I, got some, I got the books written down here. Um, um, where are they? Uh, Tobit, Bell and the Dragon, that's from the Apocrypha, Jubilees, First Enoch, Testament of Job, Second Barak, uh, from the Pseudopigrapha. And so there was a, an element or some of the Jews entertained this idea of, 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 of angel worship or even uh, some Qumran community uh, uh, followers uh, claimed that, uh, that uh, uh, Michael, the archangel Michael was superior to the Messiah. Now that wasn't necessarily when Jesus was here, that was before then the older Qumran community, but anyway, so I've often wondered why why the treatment of angels, but so he's they're making sure in in, in verse four that uh, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. And if you remember, verses five through fourteen are the author giving Old Testament support for all of his claims in those first few verses. Uh, and so now let, let's transition into chapter 2. Scott, can you sort of start us off with this opening? Let, maybe we can read the first four verses, and then you can sort of help us sure. understand it. All right, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Yeah, so I, I can just get it started. I, I love this beginning to, to chapter 2. Uh, it's wonderful. We could really spend the whole time on this opening section. It's just so worth our time to, to focus on, even the rest of this week, to soak in the, the first four verses. It's just fantastic about this idea of drifting in the Christian life. Al Mohler, in his short little commentary that uh, Papa Fred has got sitting right here, he says, uh, there's no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. What does he mean? There's no such thing as standing still. Well, in the Christian life, we are swimming against the tide. We're swimming against the current. 
The world, the flesh, and the devil is seeking to pull us away from spiritual things, pull us away from from the things of God. So when we sort of relax, we are going to go backwards. So there's no such thing as standing still. As soon as we let off our pursuit of holiness, we are going to go back. So there's no such thing as standing still. The fight of sanctification is a fight against the tides of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Another commentator said, do you realize that if you do not pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate on its own? When he says pay attention, he means care for it. Think, think you have a garden, and you, you, you plant the garden, you water it, you, do all, you pull up the weeds of the garden. Well, if you don't pay attention to that garden, if you don't mend it, if you don't care for it, it's going to deteriorate. That garden is going to deteriorate. Weeds are going to pop up everywhere. Well, the same is true of our spiritual life. It's going to deteriorate if we don't spend time caring for our spiritual life. He says, without giving heed to the spiritual resources God provides, your heart will revert to all kinds of sin. And this is true of, of all of us as Christians. I think, think of Jerry Edgar, one of the most sanctified people I know, and think of a brand new Christian. If both of them neglect the means of grace, both of them are going to drift. They're, I mean, sin is going to come into both of their lives. Any of us in this room, if we neglect the means of grace, I think we all know this, sin immediately starts to come in. I mean, if I neglect the Bible, neglect prayer, irritability, complaining. These sins are going to come right out of me, and that, what, what that shows me is that's, that's me drifting in the Christian life. This is one commentator said this is one of the besetting sins of our, of our day, is this, this sin of drifting. So maybe that'll just get the ball rolling on this important topic. Yeah, I mean, you think about, uh, there's very likely kind of a boat metaphor going on here, uh, this idea of, 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 the, of a boat being in a current, and maybe it's headed towards a dock, and on its way to the dock, if you turn the engine off early and you sort of aim it straight at the dock and you just let, turn the engine off, well, what's going to happen is you're going to miss the dock because the current is going to pull you slowly this way, this way, and then suddenly, if you're not paying attention, you look up and you're in the wrong part of the river. Like, you're, you're, you're going downstream. This is not good. And um, just to, this is, this is um, true, that the, the current of the world is heading towards destruction. And so the, the ultimate uh, end point of where that's going is destruction. Now, on the sermon on Sunday, I talked about how God, you know, begins a good work and he will carry it on to completion. And now there's a, there's a warning here that says, don't drift lest you drift into destruction. And so how, how are we supposed to put those two concepts together? Because you've got on one side God promising to keep his own, to preserve us. And then here it says, I mean, if you look at verse uh, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So how, how can there be a warning given to a group of Christians about your salvation if God keeps his own? What would y'all say about that? I'll just, I'll just read one quick quote that I, I thought this was great. Just on that question, he said, warnings are not designed to rob people of hope, but to steer them away from danger in order to preserve them so that they might persevere. So in the goodness of God, he gives us these warnings. So often doesn't warning passage in the Bible, don't they sort of wake us back up? They, they remind us of the danger of drifting. Oh, I am drifting. This puts us back on course. So I think that they're designed so that we will persevere these warnings in the goodness of God so often to shake us back up to reality. Say, if you keep going in this way, you're going to fall away. But he gives them so that we will turn back around. Yeah. So, so Christians, we all have times of drifting that are, that are momentary, that are, that are not permanent. And that's a thing we struggle with every day. But the an, a false believer will begin the drifting process, and then what? They're, they're not going to stop. Mm -hmm. a, a genuine believer is eventually going to course correct by God's grace and, and turn back to, to Christ and, and repent and go back, um, even, even if there's a serious fall. Uh, but an unbeliever ultimately begins to drift, and then the sign that they're not genuinely a believer is that they don't course correct. They, they just go. I mean, again, I, we don't, I, don't, I don't feel like I even need to name names right now, but there's a famous Christian who wrote a bunch of books uh, who, I guess, is in his 40s, and he comes out on social media a few months ago and says, I'm no longer a Christian, and I'm leaving my wife. And I, I was shocked by that. I mean, I, I, I've known of this person's ministry for more than a decade, probably almost a, a lot of my life. And for him to come out and say, by every definition of what a Christian is, I am not one. Well, th this is a person who's refusing to course correct. And, and, and so it, it, the drifting is inevitable for anybody. But the course correction, the repentance is the mark of a believer. Uh, the, the continual drifting out to sea is the mark of someone who does not genuinely know the Lord, which is a frightening thing. It's something we should all be aware of eh, when we examine our own hearts. Papa Fred? Muller had a few points here on this 
drifting matter. You mentioned moments. Uh, we all veer off course in moments, but like you said, it's it's a constant course correction. Even in boating, even in flying, you're always correcting back to your your ultimate destination, or you wind up someplace else <laughs> that you didn't want to go. We must obey. Obedience is part of this. As, as we get down into Jesus's work, you know, he was he was obedient to God's uh, the incarnation. Uh, orthodoxy and obedience, Moeller said, are the twin oars that we must use to fight uh, spiritual drift. Um, and the fight of sanctification is a fight against, you mentioned it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then this is, this is really critical, I think, because we see it today. Denominations, churches, families, individuals suffer from heresy and theological liberalism and have a tendency to drift over time. So be aware. That's a great point. So not only do individuals drift, but organizations, institutions, uh, seminaries, uh, entire denominations can sadly begin to drift off course over time. Yes. And uh, destructive things can, can come from that. Okay, let, let's uh, continue here. So um, he gives some reasons why we should not drift. In verse 2, he begins here. So, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So the old covenant was somehow mediated by angels, and it was given, and it was right and good and true. It was God's word. And yet the punishments in the old covenant were things like exile, right? Seventy years in Babylon. That's a bad punishment, but it's only 70 years. Uh, so the Old Covenant had temporal judgments for, for, the, for the sins that were committed. That was the emphasis, was on those kinds of things. You might be, you might be put to death for, for, for serious sin in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, uh, we have far more grace in front of us, with the cross and the gospel being so explicit. But the stakes just get raised, because now the, the cost of rejecting the Mosaic Law could be death or exile. The cost of rejecting the cross of Christ is eternal death and exile. It, it is forever being taken away from the goodness of the Lord and being cast into outer darkness. So if anything, you know, when people say the Old Testament is the mean God, the New Testament's the nice God, we say, okay, God is both kind and just in both Testaments, but we see more of his love at the cross and more of his wrath at the cross than we do in the rest of the Old Testament. So really, all of God's attributes are being amplified. You're seeing them more and more clearly the further you go in the New Testament. So here he says the judgment in the Old Testament was actually small stuff compared to the judgment in the New Covenant. It, it, the stakes are higher. And the love is also more obviously on display through Christ's sacrifice. You know, I, think I was talking to Karen earlier, and, and this um, um, statement about every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. She was reminding me of in Leviticus, you know, you, that was for unintentional, the sacrifices were for unintentional sins. Deliberate sins were not covered under the law. So we, we have, we do have great grace. And, but that's kind of a, you wonder about those folks. Yes. Yeah. Still thinking about this whole topic with uh, drifting and everything, I think part of it is recognizing this great salvation, is remembering, uh, paying closer attention. Like remembering how great the salvation is, is one of the ways that we don't drift as well. Like uh, Lloyd Jones, he preached many sermons just on like this great salvation. He just went into it over and over. He kept pounding it in how great the salvation is, like surveying this, the wondrous cross. He said, You don't take a fleeting glance. Like at the cross, you, we have to like regularly gaze upon the cross, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and, and that is one of the things that will help us. So I'm just one one more thing on this idea of drifting, and and, and it starts, I think, with carelessness, uh, laziness, and we begin to drift. And in this biography I'm reading on, on Lloyd Jones, it told the story of this guy who was genuinely converted, and he came to Lloyd Jones much later in his life because he was terrified if he was a genuine believer. And what happened was he 
several years after becoming a Christian, he be it started with just carelessness, spiritually. He just began to neglect the Bible, and what happened was sin began to creep into his life, worldliness began to creep into his life, and after a period of time, he was living no different than an unbeliever, and he was terrified. Am I a Christian? He went to Lloyd-Jones just terrified, and, that, that, and Lloyd-Jones helped him and walked through that, but it started with carelessness. So I'm just, we, we've got to fight against carelessness uh, in terms of spiritually. We've got to prioritize time in the Word. Just going back to chapter 1 where it says long ago many times God spoke. Every time I hear that, I think of John Piper's sermon on that. It's an incredible sermon where he just says, God spoke. Like, how amazing that we have the Bible. I think going back to that, just stunned that we have the, the Word of God. I, mean, just been, I just read through this uh, biography, Elizabeth Elliot biography, Through Gates of Splendor, which uh, Grant would find kind of funny because I gave it to him as a recommendation. Then I realized I hadn't really read the, the whole book. So I read the whole book last week. It's fantastic. But here you see these missionaries sacrificing so much to translate the Bible into, into, a, into, into a, their language that they've never had the Bible before. I mean, just the amazing thing that we have the Bible. So we've got to prioritize time in the Word. That's sort of tier one that I think, but I think tier two is, is what I've been thinking about recently. Is, it's, is This is what I've been calling sort of tier two is what strengthens my faith in God? What are those things that strengthen my faith in God? What weakens my faith in God? Get rid of everything that weakens my faith in God, everything that causes unbelief to creep into my life, and then fill my life with everything that will strengthen my faith in God. Well, one of those things for me is Christian biography, and I just put this two and two together like this is obvious. If Christian biography strengthens my faith in God, I should be dipping into a Christian biography every day. Like this is common sense obvious, but I just figured this out. So now I'm trying to be disciplined, <laughs> gonna dip into a biography, trying to at least maybe five days a week, just dipping into these biographies, and it's amazing what, what happens. Just, just one story from that Elizabeth Elliot book that I know some of y'all have read. She, she tells about all the, the, these missionaries who died, but one of the stories was about Roger Udarian, was one of the guys who died. Well, I didn't know much about Roger Udarian. He was uh, reaching another tribe, I think Hivaro tribe, and they were trying to reach another tribe, which I had it written down to pronounce the name Atchwara tribe, Atchwara tribe. They'd never heard the name Jesus in the Atchwara tribe, so, but they're a very violent tribe as well. And these missionaries have antibiotics. And word is being spread that they've got antibiotics. It's sort of this miracle thing that they've got. And so one of the chiefs of this tribe gets sick, and he hears that they have antibiotics. He comes all the way there. They're amazed that he's there. They give him antibiotics. They heal him. He invites the missionaries to come to their tribe. This is what they have been praying for. They, they said, if you send some of your, the Indians from your tribe to us, we'll come. And so three of these missionaries, Roger Ugerian, Frank Drowns, and another missionary went with these Indians. Frank Drowns was the only one who spoke the language that they understood. And they journey all night. They, they camp out on, on the trail. They finally make it there. And the very first thing after greeting them, Frank Drowns, what does he do? He tells them the gospel. It's just beautiful. He tells them the gospel, lifts up Jesus Christ and him crucified until he's exhausted. He loses his voice. He has to take a break. He has to sleep for a while. They played gospel records that they understood, and they, they're waiting patiently for him to get back up. And as soon as he gets back up, they say, tell us more about Jesus. And Frank Drowns gets it back up and tells them about Jesus. It's just, it's beautiful. It reminds me of the greatness of our salvation. It reminds me of the wonder of the gospel that we've been entrusted with. Missionaries will give so much, uh, sacrifice so much, speak until they can't speak anymore to give the gospel. So just find out what it is for you that strengthens your faith, and then let's, let's fill our lives with, with those things. That's so good. And, you know, I'm also thinking about Piper's sermon on two, where, uh, you know, what easier command could there be than to say, listen. Uh, so that's the, you know, it's a chapter. He gives us 14 verses, no commands. First command, pay attention. It's like, okay, that, that doesn't, it doesn't, like, I think Piper said, the first command is not labor for me, it's look at me. It's not work for me, it's worship me. It's, it, it, don't think of it as this kind of hard work I have to do. He said, there's nothing easier in all the world than to pay attention, to, to watch, to listen. That's the easiest command in the world unless you find the subject matter uninteresting, right? If the subject matter is uninteresting, there's nothing harder than to listen. And the, the thought of being forced to listen to a podcast that's hours long on something you don't care about, that sounds horrible. Or sitting through class in a, in a, with a subject that you don't like at all, and you're just trying to endure to the end every day to get the class over with, it's very hard to listen. But when it's something you care about, there's nothing easier in the world than to listen. To, to look, to watch, to pay attention. And uh, Piper says, well, you know, this first chapter is making it pretty easy for us to pay attention. Look at all there is about Jesus in these first 14 verses and then listen. And then he said, you know, if you're going to listen, you, you make sure that you're, um, you know, if, if it's, um, 
if it's a podcast, you make sure you've got your phone, you've got everything set up to listen if you're driving in your car that day. If you've got a 30-minute drive, you have your podcast set up or you have your music set up. You make provisions for what you're going to listen to. You make sure you're ready to go. Um, and, you know, back in the day, you had to download it ahead of time. Remember this? You had to download it, like, on your computer and transfer it onto your iPod and, like, get it. And I, I would do this. I would spend, like, an hour getting all these things on my iPod and then I would listen to it later. But you make provision. If it's a book you want to read, you go buy it at the store, you order it on Amazon, and you can't wait till it gets there, and you open it up and you start reading. Because for the things we care about, we make provisions and we do what it takes to, to listen. And, and th this first major command of the book, from which all the commands flow, if, you, if we do this right, everything goes with it spiritually. And if we don't do this, everything falls apart. And this command is just basically enjoy the Lord Jesus. Like watch him, read about him, think about him. Uh, pay attention to him. And, and if you think that's a one-time command, look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews. 3, 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful also over in God's house. But do you see that command? Consider Jesus. Think about him. Pay attention to him. Look at him. Compare him to Moses. Compare him to angels. See how much better he is. And by the way, com comparison in this way is good. You know, we often talk about comparison being bad, which it, it often is when we're comparing ourselves with each other. But here, taking Jesus and comparing him to other things is wonderful for worship. Because you compare Jesus to something and you go, wow, he is way better than that. He is so superior to that. And then flip with me to chapter 12. We all know this one. Uh, chapter 12. Verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The NIV, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And if you think he's done, look at verse 3, consider him. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted? I mean, do you see this? Like, every time there's a problem, what's the answer? Look at Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. Consider him again. I mean, just over and over and over again, oh, you're, you're suffering for living a righteous life? Consider Jesus, who suffered living an ultimately righteous life in our place. Oh, you're, you're discouraged? Consider Jesus, who ran the course first and foremost, who finished the race and is now uh, there to encourage us. Now, think about Jesus. So uh, this should just be, for the believer, this should not be uh, a drudgery or a duty. Uh, it is a duty, but it shouldn't just be that. This should be the, the privilege of the Christian life is man. I get to admire the one who is ultimately and infinitely admirable. I, I, I get to soak in the presence of the one who is all-satisfying. And so th those should be sort of, I think, the, the main uh, ideas there for trying to avoid drifting. We can go back Maybe, to Jeff. Just one other thing on that. Let me just jump on that. I know we could stay in these beginnings. I, I couldn't get past it myself. But uh, <laughs> J.C. Ryle said, which some of us talked about this recently, he said there's a close connection between sin and sorrow, holiness and happiness. Sin and sorrow, holiness and happiness is just what you're saying. When we neglect spiritual disciplines, I mean, you, sorrow comes. I mean, spiritual darkness just swoops in upon us, and lack of joy. Where joy is sap. Joy in the Lord is sap. But when we pursue God, pursue holiness, happiness, the joy of the Lord comes. I mean, it's just delight comes. When, when we consider Jesus, it's just worship comes. Even this afternoon, I've been listening to different choirs have put out songs on Is He Worthy? It's just beautiful, these songs. All these different choirs online, you can type in Is He Worthy on YouTube and and you're just, I'm just considering Jesus. I listen to this song, this choir sing this song over and over again, and it's worship, it's joy when, when you do that. So, I mean, the motivation there should be, too, I mean, we want to honor God, but there is, there's going to be joy and delight when we don't drift away from, from the things of God. I, I was thinking, too, uh, along those lines of, of hearing uh, Romans 10, 17. You know, faith comes from hearing, hearing the Word of God, hearing about Christ. And that's how we... That's why, how, how we believe. So, so hearing and listening and paying attention uh, is pretty significant to keep us from drifting. And so here in the middle of, we're back in chapter 2, uh, the middle of verse 3, he gives us some more reasons why we should listen. So in the middle of verse 3, chapter 2, it was declared at first by the Lord. So that's reason number one. 
that the gospel was proclaimed by the Lord himself, Jesus Christ. So that, that's why we should listen. It came from the Lord, number two, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So that would be the apostles, right? So, so it came from apostles who were reliable. Number three, God also bore witness. This is God the Father. God also bore witness, how? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the most important person in history, the Lord, Jesus himself, spoke the gospel. Number two, his apostles, who were credible, testified to the truth. Number three, God bore witness through the miraculous works done by Jesus and the apostles. And the Holy Spirit distributed gifts according to his will. Some people think these are the, even the gifts in the church, like we have here. Uh, the gifts of service and the gift of teaching and on and on. So you're, you're seeing evidence of God confirming and reconfirming the truth of Jesus. So there are many reasons to trust and rely on this, this final word given by God through, through his son. Any other thoughts on one through four? That's good. All right, we're going to move on here to uh, verse 5, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 through 9. This is chapter 2, 5 to 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, a little, uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So can we just real quick... Hold your spot and flip to Psalm chapter 8, sort of in the middle of your Bible, maybe. Uh, Psalm chapter 8. This is the psalm, obviously, that's, that's being quoted here. Now, th th I guess there is a little bit of a debate about this, but I I'm fairly persuaded of, of a perspective here. So I, my understanding is Psalm 8 is talking about the, the, the role human beings had originally in the Garden of Eden that we then failed horribly at accomplishing. I think that's what Psalm 8 is about. So just let me just read it quickly. It's only nine verses. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Getith, no idea what that means, a psalm of David. Here we go. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Now just pause. This is confusing. I don't think son of man there is referring only to Jesus here. I think this is referring to humanity. So what is man, that is mankind, that you care for, or the son of man? Remember, son of man can be a reference to Jesus, like, oh, son of man, have mercy on me, or like Daniel 7, the son of man came before God. But it frequently just means human being. Like Ezekiel is called son of man dozens of times. Oh, son of man, Ezekiel. So it doesn't have to mean divine here. I think it's just referring to humanity. Verse uh, 5, talking about human beings, Yet you have made him, humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, do you hear Genesis 1 and 2? I mean, the, you got the creatures on the ground, the creatures in the sea, and Adam and Eve are given dominion, right? You've given them dominion. So Adam and Eve were human beings. We were all supposed to be like them originally, and we would be sinless, and we would represent God's rule on earth, and God would put all of creation under our feet, and we would rule the world on behalf of God. That was the original goal. And when you read Psalm 8 right now, you're like, uh... Is there a little problem here? Like, that doesn't seem to be happening currently, David. David's writing this long after the fall. Like, I mean, just, just think about it. I mean, the amount of ho horrific events. I mean, 2020 is the year of news. I mean, you turn on the, the you, every 15 minutes, there's something horrifying that just happened, right? You, you, someone else has been murdered. Someone else has been uh, horribly killed in an accident or whatever. I mean, you just, the news is horrifying. You, every time you, you check it, you have to remind yourself of God's sovereignty just to kind of get through reading the news. Well, clearly, 
all things are not subjected to our feet, right, as human beings. And the, the primary thing that's not subject, I mean, you have sin, right, creating all this chaos, but the primary thing is we all also are under sentence of death. The, the, everybody at the end doesn't have supremacy. We all end up in the grave. And so there's this sense of where is humanity ruling eternally like we were supposed to do in the garden? Where, where is that, David? What, what are you talking about? Where, where is this going to happen in the future? And if you turn back to Hebrews 2, I don't want to bore you, but I'm going to reread just again. So just see if you're sort of seeing what's going on here. So verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world, what? To come. To come. So do you see, Psalm 8 is going to come true one day. It's just not going to happen in this earth. It's going to happen in the new earth. Do you see that? So the original intention that humanity rules the world on God's behalf is going to happen in the new earth. The new world, the world that is to come, of which we are speaking. But it's not, gonna, it's not happening in this world. You can see that. Just look outside. So then he, then he quotes Psalm 8, verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his, under his feet. Now, we're still in verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, human beings, he left nothing outside of his control. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Do you see that? So right now, the world is not subjected to human beings. Instead, the world destroying is, is destroying through sickness and disease and awful things. The world is, is actually not in proper place. And so what's the answer? Verse 9. But we see him. Now, this is no longer the human race. That's him. That's Jesus. So human beings have failed we don't have dominion like we should. The world is broken. We're all dying. But we see Jesus. Well, how does that answer the question? Well, how does that help us? But we see him, verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, do you see? The first Adam failed to have dominion. The last Adam, Jesus, the true son of man, the truly human one, came. And through, through his death, he destroyed Satan's power over death. And now he's going to bring a new creation where guess what's going to happen? He, as a human being and divine, is going to rule the world as the Adam figure. He's going to rule the world with you and me at his side. And so the Psalm 8 thing, the Genesis 1 and 2 thing, is going to happen. It's just going to happen in the next world, the new world, the world to come. And so Psalm 8... Uh, the original picture is going to happen in the future there. And it's only because Jesus tasted death for all of his people and has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. So thoughts on that? I just like the parallel that, you know, we, we were made lower than the angels, and yet one day we'll judge angels. And he, for the time of his incarnation was made lower than angels. So he, this is identification with us again, as we, we find later in the chapter. So that's an amazing, um, and then, but he's been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering, was his suffering death by the grace of God, he may test, taste death for everybody. I mean, that's, that's an amazing offering to actually experience death on our behalf and take the sting out of death. As, as he says in, in uh, Colossians. That's amazing. Yeah, just to read uh, verse 9 again, and then tie it into something you said earlier, Martin. But verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I thought Alistair Begg was so good in his sermon on this part. He said, do not allow yourself to be buffeted by the circumstances which are around you, which we can so, it can so easily happen, especially now. We can be buffeted by the circumstances around us. He said, don't drift away because of discouragement. Make sure you keep your gaze on Christ. When we see Jesus, then we will see people in the light of Christ. When we see Jesus, we see our city in a new light. When we see Jesus, we see our boss in a new light. When we see Jesus, we will see the difficulties of our kids in a new light. You've got to see Jesus. I just love that. We've got to fix our gaze on Jesus. One guy said, like, for every look at COVID-19, take 100 at Jesus, something like that. He said, we're doing the opposite. We would take so many looks at COVID-19 or whatever's going on, but we've got to be regularly looking way more 
at Jesus because that will totally transform us and change us just like, like what you were saying earlier. Not get so fixated on the, on the circumstances, but get up on our gaze on Christ and it will change the way we see things around us. So, turn, uh, verse 10 is where we are now. So let's pick up at verse 10. Still continuing with the same thought here. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your, the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this may make you uncomfortable, because it made me uncomfortable. I remember years ago, just look at verse 10. At the end of that verse, it says that God is going to make the founder of our salvation perfect through <coughs> suffering. So, so Jesus is going to be made perfect through suffering. And, and you go, wait a second. Jesus has always been perfect. What does that mean? What, what are you trying to say here? What do you mean Jesus became perfect? I thought he was perfect. Well, of course, morally, he was perfect forever. This is not, this is not about his morality. It wasn't like he used to sin, you know, back when Jesus was, before Christmas, Jesus sinned a lot. And then he, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Je Jesus has always been morally perfect. He's always been clearly equal in his divinity. Chapter 1 emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. Chapter 2 emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. Remember that. Chapter 1, he's divine. Chapter 2, he's truly human. But here's what we see here. What, in what way was he imperfect? Not morally. He had a role to fulfill. Think about this. Before Jesus was born and lived and died, had he yet become a merciful and faithful high priest, a, a sympathetic high priest? He couldn't sympathize. No. He hadn't been a human yet. So he was not yet perfect in that sense. You see, it's not moral. It's not a moral problem. He had to become human in order. He couldn't be the Davidic king unless he was born in the line of David. So that was something that needed to happen through his life. He couldn't be a, an atonement for your sin until he was born and lived and died and rose. That was something he did not do before he was born. And so there are, he couldn't, I mean, verse, 16, uh, verse 17 and 18 tell you what he had to do. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, atonement, right, for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He could do virtually nothing in verses 17 and 18 until he did it, right? He couldn't, he, he, 17 and 18 are only possible because he lived a perfect life, died and rose. And so in those ways, he became the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sympathizer, those are all things that, that would have been impossible uh, without the incarnation. So you guys can pick up on that or, or move on to the next part here in verse uh, 10. Well, I just want uh, perfect through suffering. Um, obedience, like you said, he hadn't completed. He learned, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered, which is, hey, a little um, primer for us. We learn obedience sometimes through discipline, through the things that we suffer. We learn, um, we go to him. Uh, we, uh, you know, he's our big brother, older brother, that's already been through this before, paved the way, and uh, set the pace, so. That's good. Yeah, just, come, just piggybacking off that idea, the big brother idea, uh, it's amazing that verse 11, is, the end of verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I mean, this is a verse that we can just rush right past in reading of Hebrews, but this is a verse that, I just read you three different people it's talking Romans about. Eight. <laughs> yes, three different people talking about the wonder that Jesus is not ashamed to call, call us brother. 
This is a stupendous declaration in light of the cosmic greatness of Christ. The amazing fact is this son, this Jesus, is not reluctant or ashamed to call the redeemed his brothers. We can experience the blessed condition of being able to say, Abba, Father, you are in the family of God. It's just off the charts spectacular. That's Piper at the end, and then Piper points to 1 John 3, 1. The Apostle John says, Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then Piper says, Why does he use the word behold? He says he used that word because you've got to use a word like that to wake people up. Behold what kind of love we have received, even though we're fallen, sinful, hell-deserving people. Look at the, this love that God has shown us, that we could be called the children of God. I mean, it's amazing that Jesus would call his brother, by the fact, brothers and sisters, it can be, because he's redeemed us, that Jesus is, is our brother. We're in the family of God. I think we should never lose the wonder of that. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, sometimes people say, you know, you, you have the black sheep in the family, you know, the, maybe a relative who's sort of like a little bit of an embarrassment, and you, you always warn people ahead of time, like, Uncle Bill's coming, He's a, he says some strange things, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, you're like, oh boy, Uncle Bill, and so, um, we, you know, we, have, we can have shame of family members, we, we, we don't even want to be around certain people with these people there, because they, they, they say things, or they, they're, they're, they can be embarrassing, it can be shameful, and uh, Jesus looks at you and says, I'm not ashamed to be identified with you. To, to be your sibling, to be your older brother, not ashamed. And uh, that, that's astonishing, that, that he would make eye contact with you and me and say, I'm, I'm happy to, to call you my brother and sister in the Lord. It's just, that, that's amazing. And, and the author gets this theology from Psalm 22. Now, if you were on Zoom this summer, thank you for enduring those services on Zoom, by the way. But if you were on Zoom this summer, uh, I, I went through Psalm 22, I think, on Easter. It was Easter. Yeah. And, so we and did. Yeah. Psalm 22. And, and if you remember, uh, the, the psalm has a turning point, ironically, at verse 22. So it's easy to remember. And uh, right up to verse 19, it's all doom and gloom. Why have you forsaken me? My enemies surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encompass me. All that stuff is happening. I can, you know, my tongue sticks to my jaws. I can, I can count all my bones. And then there's this turning point where he says, Basically, he has confidence the Lord is going to save him, and he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And that convinced me, by the way, that all of Psalm 22 is about Jesus, not just part of it. Because the whole psalm here, he quotes a later part of that psalm and says, that's resurrection. That's after the, after the agony. He's now resurrected. He's delivered by God. And he says, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers in the congregation. And the author of Hebrews says, well, yeah, Jesus is going to do that. He, he is, he's unashamed to call us uh, his his brothers. How about verses uh, 14 to 15? Scott, can you read those? Yeah. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me just start on it. Uh, well, Al Mohler said death is the most frightening thing we can ever face without the gospel. Why? Because we're going to face the judgment of God if we're not clothed in the blood of, of Jesus. And I was thinking about this. I'm sure you've had this experience talking to non-Christians. If you've ever talked to non-Christians about the subject of death, I've seen it many times where as soon as I start talking about death, they start getting uncomfortable. They want to change the subject because I think deep down there, there's this fear deep within them of death. It's like, what if there is a God? What if I am accountable? What if there is a judgment? So they don't want to, they don't want to go there. But how different it is for the believer because Jesus has defeated death. And I, I could give so many examples of, of Christians throughout history who, who have not feared death at all. I think of D.L. Moody is the, is the famous one who said, one day you're going to read in the paper that D.L. Moody of East Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I will have gone up higher. That is all. Like, he didn't fear death at all. He knew that Jesus had, had defeated death. I'll give you one more. is Cor Corrie ten Boom. Many of you know Corrie ten Boom, who, who wrote The Hiding Place. She, she got out of there uh, through a clerical error. She went on to speak all around the world, and this happened later in her life. She was on a plane. She was flying over, over water. She woke up, and she smelled smoke. Something was burning. She asked the stewardess, and there was, there was a fire somewhere, I think, in, in the hydraulic system. The guy that was near her, she asked him about it, and he said this was a very serious problem. The, the pilot could lose control at any moment, and basically they would all die. But it said this, uh, Corey just simply made this, this simple prayer uh, to the Lord, not fearing death at all, she, she just said this prayer, Lord, perhaps I shall see you very soon. I thank you that all my sins have been cleansed. 
by the blood of the Lamb. Wow. I just thought that, that's just beautiful. She knows, even though they could die any moment, she knew she may see Jesus very soon. She wasn't scared of death. Why? Because Jesus had partaken in flesh and blood. Jesus has destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he's delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, I mean, what joy this is for us that death is, is the window to, to seeing him now. Uh, I think of, of one of my dad's favorite sermons that I've listened to the portion of it that I put on YouTube over and over again. I listened to it again, or most of it again today, where he talks about seeing, as a pastor, he walked through seeing a lot of people die, like go through the dying process. And he gives three examples and talks about how death took everything from them. But then like in the crescendo, he's like, death is not a natural part of life. It is an enemy that wants to take you and destroy you. But Jesus has defeated death. He said, one of these days, he's going to destroy it. And you all will be singing on that day like you've never sung before. So I just think it's, wow. it's just beautiful and wonderful that Jesus has defeated death, this thing that we, we was such a fear for us, but Jesus has defeated it, and it just totally changes the perspective for believers. What did R.C. say? He wasn't afraid of death. He was afraid of dying. <laughs> yeah, the dying process. <laughs> the dying process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to, to know uh, older believers who maybe have cancer or some kind of disease, and as much as you hate that and you pray against that, to see older believers to be able to face those realities with a real, genuine, hopeful confidence, that's just, it's an amazing testimony. To have someone later in life knowing it's coming, knowing it's close, and then not, not have to get around the issue or change the subject, that they know it's there and that they're, they're saying, you know, it's, it's going to be good. Like, to, to be with the Lord is going to be like, he's given me a life here, I've been able to serve him, and, and I can't wait to, to meet him. And to see that really come through someone's face, not, not a Sunday school answer, the, the, when they really mean that from their heart, that's, a, that's something that I'm not sure what other worldviews give you that kind of confidence in, in the face of those things. Uh, you don't see that same kind of peace. I, I know Piper had um, about 14 years ago or something had prostate cancer and had surgery. And uh, he wrote, uh, don't waste your cancer and use that you know, worldwide for ministry. Just his points that, you know, trusting God and don't trust your odds, you know, trust the Lord and that type of thing. Um, and so he, you know, it, 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 he, he used it as a testimony. I think he's now 74 or five, I don't know, so. Yeah, and we're about to wrap up here. By the way, we have a bunch of copies of the little pamphlet that you just talked about in our in our side room oh, if anyone is interested cancer. it's an uplifting title uh but it's a great it's a great uh, little because he wrote it the night before surgery yeah for, for his cancer yeah that's exactly right it's a powerful read so just real quick as we wrap up uh, look with me back again at verse 15 so jesus died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery that may sound like an overstatement that people are enslaved to the fear of death, but I would say that what you're talking about, that wanting to ignore it and not talk about it, is a form of slavery to the fear of death. I mean, if you don't think our culture is enslaved to the fear of death, just stop and think about conversations about health, about exercise. All that is is I'm terrified of dying. That's all that, underneath all that, like healthy eating, and like I need to eat better, I need to make sure I'm doing my cardio. It's all, underneath all that, it's basically, and it's, it's it's good and right to do those things. <laughs> I think you should do those things. But underneath it, the, the obsession with those things is I'm going to get as far away from death as I possibly can get because I don't want to have to face it. And, and if I eat enough celery here, uh, then I, I can push it off a little further. And, and the idea is, we, like Don Carson said, that um, he's, he, he speaks at colleges with non-Christian audiences. And he said, I, I can say, hey, let's talk about homosexuality. Everybody has an opinion, wants to talk about it. He said, I can even say, let's talk about pedophilia. And he said, everybody in the room has an opinion, wants to discuss it like it's a debate. He says, well, let me tell you how my dad died. He said, the room is not so wanting to participate in that conversation. He said, as soon as he brings up a story about death of someone he knows, the room goes, grows awkward, and people are trying to avoid looking and thinking about what he said. He said, he said it's the last taboo in our culture. You can talk about any inappropriate thing but you can't talk seriously about death for five minutes because we are enslaved to the fear of death. A culture that doesn't talk about death, that won't even look at the open casket at the funeral, that's a, that's a culture that's enslaved to the fear of death. We don't want to look death in the eye. We don't want to acknowledge it. And we live our lives like it's something out there somewhere, not something that could happen today. We don't believe that. We, we, we want to push it off. And so Jesus, by his 
death-defeating resurrection says you can live where you, you take death seriously, you don't pursue death, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to take a footnote to what I'm saying, don't pursue death, okay? You, you should do your exercising, you know, do your Pilates, I don't know what you do, do, do all that stuff. But what, what I'm saying is Jesus, defeat of death, ultimately makes it to where when that inevitable day comes, we can face it with genuine hope and, and not have to make up something or try to tell ourselves something to, to kind of get it out of our, our heads. Papa Fred, would you close us in prayer here? Yes, thank you, Mark. Um, I go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Uh, Father, it's so easy to drift. It's so easy to... Um, begins sometimes just with moments, and then it extends to to other things. Um, I pray that we go back to chapter one and and listen to the son who who spoke to us, um, and that we um, we focus on his word, and that we hear what he said, and that we pay attention, and to our um, to our faith and, and, and don't neglect this great salvation and it is a phenomenal salvation um, but let us be attentive let us seek you with all our heart, mind and soul let us pursue the word uh, faithfully uh, let the word speak to us meditate on it uh, seek you and and while you can be found there's an urgency that this is the first warning verse i guess we had in, in hebrews uh don't drift but there are others and and today while it is today which is another warning uh don't neglect this great salvation so i pray that father through uh the study of hebrews this these warnings this uh your word will come alive in our lives and, and, and keep us from drifting, keep us on course so we reach our final destination to be with you eternally and forever. To you be the glory and all praise. Amen.